Content warning. This series will discuss topics that may bring up painful experiences for you. Please take the time to surround yourself with good medicines. If need be, pause the playback and go for a walk, stretch, have a glass of water, and come back to the show when you feel comfortable. Welcome to the Métis Speaker Series. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs. On this podcast series, we will be exploring learning, healing, and rebuilding within the Métis community. Our goal is to create awareness of and generate discussion about Métis issues, as well as how to heal from and move forward in a healthy way. We hope to reduce Métis invisibility in BC through the personal stories from our Métis community members. The show is brought to you by the Métis Nation of British Columbia and Jelly Marketing. Lauren, thank you again for being here. This me. is so special. Just as we get started, maybe tell me, maybe give your full name just for the editor's sake and everything, and kind of what you're up to these days. Hey, well, Tonse, Tonse Kiowao, Lauren Dishnikashen. My name is Lauren Peterson, and I am the K-12 Education Manager for Métis Nation British Columbia, as well as a Master's of Education student at the University of Victoria doing educational leadership for community engagement and adult education. That is incredible. That is incredible. What does a typical day look like for you? Chaos. <laughs> right now, my department is just me. So I'm the only person K-12 for all of British Columbia for 60 school districts and supporting 39 chartered communities. So I'm everywhere all the time. This time next week, I'll be in Merritt doing professional development with teachers in the school district out there that want to learn more about Métis people and culture. So that's pretty cool. But Typically, I am glued to my computer on Zoom, on provincial advisory boards, strategizing, doing policy analysis, curriculum development. Yeah, everywhere, all over the place. Anything K-12, I'm in it. <laughs> that is amazing. So I currently have three of my four children are in K-12, both in the Langley and Surrey School District. And they are both part of the, all of them are part of the Indigenous school program. So your influence, they'll begin to see more Métis content in their pieces. That is that part of the, what, the fruit of what your work will yes, look like? Yes, it is. Uh, I, I work in partnership with the school districts to um, provide enhanced services and advocate for uh, Métis perspectives. Although you're really lucky with Surrey and Langley. Like, I'm very biased. Because I live in Surrey and I've had a lot of conversations with Surrey lately and they're just on fire. They're so great. They're doing their equity scan. They're uh, sharing it with Métis families. They're doing open houses. So they want everybody to be involved and say, like, before we release this document, is, does this reflect what you've experienced? Which I think is just phenomenal. And they invited me and, and some people from my um, team just in the Ministry of Education to come and share what we do and answer questions so that all the support our workers knew what our programs were so that they can connect the families, which is amazing. And I used to work as an Aboriginal support worker in Langley. So that's my home. And I graduated from Alder Grove Secondary. So, and I'm still like connected to both my support workers I had. So like, it's That a, it's is incredible. Wonderful program. My daughters, especially, both in grade one and grade two right now, really, really love their support worker in their elementary school at Fort Langley Elementary. Oh, yeah. That's a great place to be. And that's where the office is, too. So, you know, you're getting everything first. (laughs) It's awesome. So, Lauren, how old were you when you knew, you really felt and and knew in your heart and knew in your mind that you were Métis and, and that meant something to you? 
My mom was raised in Winnipeg with a family that has always been Métis. My grandma didn't really talk about it a whole lot because of racism and everything, but like the things that they would do around the house and with their family and like, like my grandma's cousins were my mom's aunties and like my cousins are like my sisters. And so we were raised in with definitely with like Métis influences that like can't be erased by colonialism. So like I'm the first, my brother and I are the first people in our family to not live in Winnipeg from our like core family. And it's just me and my brother and my mom here, but my mom always did a really good job of making sure that we were connected and raised us. Like we didn't necessarily have the words to describe what it was we were doing or what we were feeling. But like when I, in the work I do now, when we promote like the core Métis, 12 Métis values that Leah Dorian talks about in her book, The Giving Tree, like those were always very present in our lives. And my mom enrolled me in the Indigenous program, Alder Grove Elementary and Alder Grove Secondary, right from kindergarten all the way through to grade 12. So I had Métis support workers. I had Métis community around me. We were involved with Fraser Valley and Métis Association. And later on, as an adult, I was part of Waichia. But it's it's always been there and it's always been really important to me. But I did find it really frustrating growing up, going to Winnipeg, being with my family, seeing us presented a certain way, like in practice and the things that we would do and like going fishing with my uncle and doing all those fun things. And then coming back to BC and basically hearing, yeah, well, they, they had a rebellion and then they died. But for me, it never made sense because I was always taught from just like family and other Métis people in the community. Well, how can you rebel against something that you weren't a part of? We weren't Canadian. So like, I always found it really frustrating. And in school, only hearing about Riel. And then it was almost as if we just disappeared. And I'm like, but I'm still here. <laughs> We're still here. It doesn't make any sense. So like, I think that's probably why I work in education. But yeah, no, I've, I've had, um, I've been Métis since the day I was born. And I've been learning since the day I was born how to walk well in two worlds and, and balance that and bring that and represent our family in a good way. I think that um, all I've ever really wanted to do is make my mom and my family proud. And I think I'm doing it well. I could try. <laughs> that's awesome, Lauren. And those that are watching on video and those that are on audio, why don't you describe for us the sash that you're wearing right now? Okay, so this is my favorite sash and it was gifted to me from my good friend, Victoria Pruden, who used to be our women's chair for BC and now works or works for our national women's organization. So this is the BC women's sash. So it is dark blue on the outside, kind of like an ocean blue, a turquoise, a minty green, white, purple, red, and pink. And purple is the color of the ancestors. So it's the colors of like the, the Métis assumption sash. And it's kind of mixed in nicely with the purple. And it's just got a nice feminine vibe. I had gifted my sash to somebody because they didn't have a sash and I wanted them to have a sash. And my only sash I had remaining was the youth sash. And now I'm no longer a youth. So I don't really feel like I can wear that anymore, but I'll cherish it forever. So I told Victoria, I was like, I'm sashless. <laughs> so she presented me with this beautiful one. So I'm quite fond of it. It's amazing. Do you remember, and tell us if you can remember, the first time you got sashed and were given one, what that meant to you? Ooh. Oh, goodness. I had one when I was little because my cousin took us to Fort Gary to see, like, just learn about Métis stuff together. It was my cousin Shelly, I believe, and just had a day and... She uh, gave me a sash from the gift shop. And I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> and then um, I just had that. 
as a kid. And then I went through school without an adult sash. And I lived in Victoria and I was gifted another sash when I graduated with my bachelor's degree from the univer- someone at the University of Victoria that was also Métis. And that was really special. And then I was sashed by the Métis Youth, the Ministry of Youth for attending events and being present for those things. And so twice I was, I got a a BC 20th anniversary sash from them. And then I also got a youth sash, which is the orange and the blue. And it's really special. I'm really proud of that one. It's amazing. And when you put it on, what does it mean to you? Like, what do you feel and, and what do you get from that wearing it? I just feel like connected to something deeper to like a deeper um, community because um, like my father was from Denmark and my mother's from Manitoba. And I look a lot like my mom, but I was born with lighter features. So I often get told that I don't look Métis. And I think a lot of Métis people hear this because like, I guess we're all supposed to look one way or we're supposed to look First Nations or and like, I, I look like my mom and that's who I know to be Métis. And then like, she looks like her family. So I'm like, well, I look like them and they're there. So I think maybe it's just people not understanding intermixes because we're like a mix of like Crow, Cree, Assiniboine, Pseudo, like a bunch of different things, French and Scottish on my mom's side. So like, I look how I'm supposed to look. It's human genetics. But it's a nice external way of showing that I'm proud to be Métis. I'm proud of my culture. And so I, when I wear them, I wear them well. And I, I have a nice cedar box for them and I tuck in cedar boughs and... I smudge them before I wear them and like they're very special to me. So Lauren, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. We hear this word a lot. It's in the news, it's in the radio, the word reconciliation. Right? And it's, you know, it's it has a lot of different meanings, I think, to different people. But from your perspective, what does reconcil- reconciliation look like from a Metis lens? I feel like truth and reconciliation, how we approach it depends on our personal location and the privileges that we carry. Because as Indigenous people, we all have responsibilities to our community. We have things that we are meant to do. We're supposed to care for each other, love for each other, love the earth. We have all these relationships we have to honor. A lot of people don't realize that Métis people, especially in like the lower mainland where I am right now and where you are right now, this is not our homelands. So we... While we're not quite settlers, we carry a certain degree of settler privilege that we are benefiting being able to live in somebody else's land from their dispossession. And it doesn't matter that we were dispossessed of our land because we're still benefiting from that from another. And so that's something that's called settler privilege. So we carry that privilege. So for me, when i living in someone else's land, reconciliation to me looks like Am I walking in a good way? Is the work that I'm doing honoring the people who were here before me? Am I building those important relationships? Am I honoring that? Am I learning about their culture, their ways of life, what they did before we were here, how that has impacted them, especially working in education when I was an Aboriginal support worker. That was so important for me to build those relationships with those families and to earn their trust and to maintain it. For me, it's reconciliation is a journey and it's people walking together and learning because we all have a role to play in how this is going to pan out. And while a lot of Indigenous people, I have a hard time when people say decolonize yourself, we're not responsible for that like process. Like We need help with that. And so that comes with building relationships and allowing people to share. And I think my role, because I was 
I would say like I was born to be an educator. I love, I love education. I'm very passionate about it. I taught overseas. I worked over here. And now in my role now, I love it. So I see it as my responsibility to my community to do that in a good way, to share things authentically and to be vulnerable and to share my family's stories, to listen twice as much as I speak because <laughs> you have two ears, one mouth for a reason and just hold that space for people. And I found like I've never, at least in the lower mainland where my family is, I've never not been included. I've never not felt taken care of by the Indigenous people around me. Like one of my best friends is Shutmik. Another one of my best friends, I call her my little sister. Her dad was my sport worker. Um, she's Kwantlen First Nation and that's Eleanor and her cousin Brandon and his wife Kachina, who's Dene. They're part of my family. And even though they're from different nations, like we're in this together. We have this beautiful community that loves and cares and respects for each other. And they're not shy about calling me out if something I'm doing has a negative impact and they don't do it in a way that's cruel. They do it to help me grow. And that's something that I, I feel very fortunate for. I think we live in a beautiful area where a lot of people are very open to teaching and learning. And I think that that's just very special because it's not something you see in every community. And it's definitely not something I take for granted. So that's, that's my view on reconciliation, at least with that. Maybe unpack the part about you. You mentioned friendships with people from the First Nations community. And maybe what does that look like for you, reconciliation, when it comes to growing in relationship with, you know, Métis people being friends with those in the First Nations community and learning from uh, that community as well? Yeah. Well, you know, Métis understandings of kinship, you also build these communities that become your family. And they stick. And you don't abuse your family. <laughs> the way that I could potentially behave in my own homelands would not fly here. I can't just show up to somebody else's nation and declare it mine. We wouldn't do that. Like that's what people did to us when we were dispossessed and that caused so much trauma to our families. So the last thing I would ever want to do is have my behavior have that negative impact that would ripple seven generations forward because that's the teaching. I really value opportunities to build relationships, but I also am getting a lot better at understanding boundaries when people say no, like Closed and open cultural components don't really exist in Métis culture. So that's been a very humbling journey for me that, you know, I'm not always going to be invited. And that's okay. And it's nothing personal. I think it's important for Indigenous people to learn about each other. I also think it's important that we use distinction-based language out of respect. Because when we put everybody under one umbrella, that can cause a lot of harm. Like, I incorporate, or I, I encounter that a lot in education. When people say Indigenous, they really mean First Nation. And there's Absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's awesome. I love learning about First Nations culture. I love that in BC, the families that were here and always have been here are getting the support they need and they're seeing themselves reflected. I also love that I'm finding more and more they're advocating for us and saying, well, when you say Indigenous, you should be saying First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. Even though it's a little bit of a mouthful saying all three, it's just three names. And they've been anglicized. So like, it's not that hard. I think being a good friend and being a good ally is important when it comes to this. And also creating spaces where people feel comfortable asking questions about us. And that goes for settler friends too. Because like, my dad's family immigrated. I had a lot to learn because I live in two worlds basically. And I have that responsibility as well. And I look like them. So in, off, in a lot of cases, I'm the safe person because of the way that I look to have these conversations. And that's another big responsibility because I have to also say to people, mm, that's not really an appropriate question to ask or maybe you shouldn't be getting like 
indigenous art tattooed to your body from somebody else that was taken off the internet. Like those kinds of things happen. And it's, it's you know, learning to respect boundaries, learning to read the room. <laughs> so being that you're a teacher, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here. So I sometimes get asked, what's the difference then? I, I've been kindly trying to explain that, you know, we're not all First Nations, not all Indigenous people are First Nations, and that there's different groups. And so how do you explain it? Maybe, you know, the whole, I don't know if you've seen on Reddit where explain it to me like I'm five, but explain <laughs> it to me like I'm five, the difference between First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. Okay, so the Inuit have always lived in the Arctic. They live up north. They are related to the people in Greenland, as well as Siberia and the Sami people, like all across the North nether regions. They are the northern people. They've been there since forever and time ago. They have very different, um, like I guess, indigenous people all over the world adapt to their environments. And so they've adapted to survive to a very difficult climate. They're very resilient people. They have beautiful language. Uh, family kinship ties are strong. They have a lot of similarities to a lot of Northern First Nations. And I guess there's a lot of like relationship and sharing that go- has been going on for centuries, but they are very diverse. Like their diet, their climate, how they make their clothes, how they raise their children, how they share their stories. Everything is very, very different from anything that First Nations cultures have. Uh, and how for- many words they have for snow? There's, so cool. there's many, many it's words so for cool. snow. <laughs> yeah. I actually, when I was teaching English at an international school in Victoria, I had a student from Greenland and then she, she was a Greenlander and she was just the cool, like there were two that came at once and they were just so cool. And when I was teaching like the, the Cree syllabic, they, it's the same alphabet that they use. So she was just teaching me back and forth and we were having the best time and everybody else was like, what is happening? It was really fun. It was really cool. No, I I love their language and I love their songs and the throat singing is just so beautiful. And seeing that like become more um, shared in the mainstream, like having artists be like celebrated by non-Indigenous people that want to see it is just like the coolest thing ever. Like I think that that's really rad. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you, TikTok, even though you're addictive. (laughs) And and also have things on there that maybe aren't great. But thank you for giving an incredible platform for an amazing mother-daughter throat singing duo and huge kudos. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I I, I don't think I could ever make those noises. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just so beautiful to me to see that and to hear that. And yes, TikTok, especially during COVID, like being able to turn on an app and connect to so many Indigenous people across Canada, Native TikTok is the best. It is so cool. But um, going back to First Nations people, I like to, when I'm like correcting things or advocating about non-pan-Indigenous approaches, distinctions-based approaches are better. I say, Canada is the second biggest country in the world. You could essentially fit all of Europe in Canada. And for people that come from Europe, there's like a lot, a big Dutch Canadian community here and they all have their lions and their colors. I said, what if somebody said you were German? And that they can understand. Because nationhood doesn't change. Like that's, it's a human concept. Like it's a social construct. And that's something we see ourselves identified in a group. And that is who we are. And I say, so when it comes to differentiating First Nations and understanding that they would differ, their value systems are different, just like yours are. 
different government structures, different languages, different ways of living. Because again, we adapt to the climate we're in. And Canada has a huge biodiversity. Turtle Island is a huge biodiversity. Like I consider people from below, like south of the United States to also be indigenous. Like there are cousins. They were here too. They also went through the colonial process and survived. And I think everybody focuses so much on the last 150 years of Canada when they think about indigenous people or going back to like the 1490s, they don't realize like, despite all that, we survived. Like we are incredibly resilient people and our families are still here adapting as we always would have. And so when people say like, if you don't like it, like you don't want us here, like then don't live in our houses and don't use our technology. And I'm like, it's not your technology though. Like it came from Asia and Japan and <laughs> all these things are being done. But it's funny because like we would have adapted anyways. And like, who's to say we wouldn't have come up with similar technology? Like there's no way of knowing. Just, yeah, you know, First Nations people adaptable, very different coast to coast, north to south. It's, it's cool to see. And for the Métis people, we're just this, strange combination of all of it. <laughs> we're this, this ethnogenesis of early French traders who were very tough people to come and be here. Like that takes a lot of courage to go into the unknown and adapt and choose to stay and build relationships and families with people and like learn those languages and adapt to a completely new climate from Europe. You know, we were neither here nor there. We, we formed our own communities and we coexisted from proto-Métis, like at the first sign of the mixing, all the way to modern day with First Nations kin and those kinship systems still exist. Like, like I said, for me, family, we're a mix of a whole bunch of things. If you go back far enough, like it's pretty crazy. Going back to like the 1750s, mixing, 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 mixing. So like, I don't even know if I, like, if someone asked me about blood quantum, I wouldn't know what to tell them. But like, there are aspects of all these cultures. Like I learned, for example, I, I got to learn a bit about the Crow people through a friend who's also Crow. And she was teaching me about Montana. She went down there. She brought me back a medallion. And I noticed it was very similar. Like just the way that they do their beating is very similar to us. And I was asked by UVic, because I used to work in cultural resource management. So it's another like, branch of education is educating through cultural organizations and museums, which is so much fun. Love art. And I was able to actually recognize and identify different beadwork patterns and dresses and find the person who made this dress with like the deer tooth. And it was really cool. It was like a wedding dress and a shawl. And I was like, oh, I'm actually learning about all my roots through all this like exploration. And so like, and that doesn't make like, I feel like that's just the story of Métis people. Like we just learn a little bit more and we learn to recognize and name things. And we're a beautiful little Métisage, mixing and Love weaving it. of all the things. And I, I think that it's a cool, I don't want to say it's just a mix because we do have our, like, our own language and we adapted like any other nation would in any other place. But being Métis, is, it's a really unique thing. Like we do walk in two worlds and it, it, it brings a lot of gifts and there's a lot to celebrate. and Also a lot of responsibilities for how we represent that to each other because a lot of people misunderstand Métis identity that we are just simply First Nations and European, but it, it isn't. It's mixing and then mixing and then mixing and then mixing together, building, building up. And like First Nations people understand that. Like if you go to Treaty 1 territory, they understand that. They know who we are. They know our history. We respect each other. A lot of people are related. If you go to Saskatchewan, if you go to like Illaquois, there's a lot of Cree communities, Northern British Columbia, 
Kelly Lake First Nation, the Cree people up there, they have good relationships too with the people, the Métis Association up there that is now our newest charter community. So exciting. But they have strong kinship ties too. So like you meet Métis people that speak Southern Machif, which is the heritage Machif, which is the one that we use in all our resources. But then there's also like the French Cree Machif, which is like the Saint Laurent dialect. And then there's also like the Northern one that has more Cree and maybe some Dene and like all these cool languages. And you see that diversity. And like, even with our beadwork, like you look at the old beadwork and you can identify where families were because the styles and the plants were what they would have harvested. Like it's, even being Métis, there's diversity. So. That is really cool. It's really cool. You have this amazing perspective of getting to work with and connect with youth, you know, from K to 12. And, you know, also being amongst young adults in, in university and college, there's a story of kind of the different generations, right? Like the shame generation and then the generation that is, you know, kind of embracing being Métis. What does that mean to you? And, and what have you seen kind of generationally? Do you, do you see that that's true that, you know, you're able to take something that maybe was, you know, a, a hidden you know, thing? My grandpa kept it hidden from our family, but now it's being able to be embraced and, and people are proud of it now. And what does that mean to you? It feels like coming home. Seeing it feels, it feels good. I don't think anybody should ever be made to feel ashamed of who they are or their culture. Like I said, I think there's just so much to celebrate about being Métis that it, I don't understand. Like I still, I have, I have a hard time with that when people um, try to apply negative stereotypes to Métis people or Indigenous people in general, because growing up in it, what's not to love? And even through our traumas, like even through the most devastating things, learning about the children in the schools and family connections to that and other people's stories, like of a lot of friends whose parents went and hearing how that impacted them and how that they were raised and how they're going on. Many of them work with children in schools and I see children are who are going to heal us. And like even Louis Riel said, my people will see for a hundred years, it will be the artists bring their spirits back. The women were the artists and you educated through art. That's how we told our stories. It was a visual language telling the story of our people. And now the children are getting interested in it and they're proud of it and they're wanting, learning to bead. They make sell, youth are selling beadwork online, like all these cool opportunities. And you see that health in our community is growing. And you really see that when children grow up, raised, surrounded by culture and community and can see themselves in a bigger picture, they thrive. And we're seeing that thriving. And I'm so proud of that. It's so cool. And like, I love my program in the Langley School District because we did have an Indigenous elder who was Métis and he actually is related to me through the, my Gladue line. And I always felt like he was the coolest dude. And every time he would come, it was Philip Gladue. Anytime he would come, he made like a beaded medicine pouch with us. I'd be like, He's Métis. I'm Métis. Like, <laughs> this is my culture. And it was so cool. And then when I worked as an Aboriginal support worker, I got to see that too. That whenever a cultural presenter or anybody or any class did anything, they were proud. And it's like such a shift. And it's just like, I wonder what my grandma would think about that because we lost her. But seeing like my mom become more aware, more proud, it's, it's a cool thing to see. It's really, really empowering. And I just, I love it so much. I think that You know, the Ministry of Youth in MNBC really shaped the trajectory or trajectory of my life. And I feel very privileged that I I had these wonderful 
Métis women around me to guide me and encourage me and support me and lift me up. And then being given the opportunity to do the same and advocate at the level that I'm at is just such a, such a gift. Like I couldn't, couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life at this point. But also just like so proud to see like another Métis youth from the same period of time that I was receiving those teachings and doing those things is now our national president. Like, what? I think that just speaks to like the value of investing your time and your teachings and your love in the youth and like seeing what happens. Like when they rise, they rise quickly. <laughs> Pretty incredible. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm really, really proud of that ministry and just like the, how far they've come and the message that that sends. I really hope that that has a big impact on kids today that they can look up to, to Cass and see, look what you can do. That is awesome. Incredible. Now, if you if you could wave a magic wand and you could get in front of every Métis K to twelve person across Canada, like well, imagine that you somehow had this superpower to get on everyone's phone and you had a minute, you had a minute to say something to them, and you don't even have to use the full minute. But if you could say a message to every K to twelve Métis person across Canada, what would that be? What would what would be your word of maybe encouragement, maybe kind of word of knowledge that you want to give them and pass on? Hmm. That's a good question. I would just tell them that I'm proud of them and that I'm excited they're there and that even if they're not ready to share, even if they're still learning that, you know, Wakato and there's a place for everybody in the circle. And I'm just excited to see where they go with their lives and where they take the gifts that they're given and how they represent the Métis people because they have so many more opportunities than even our generation would have dreamed of. And it's just... Man, they're so lucky and I'm just, I'm so excited for them. And also like, they keep using their voices. Like if somebody's misrepresenting our culture, speak up. Just do it. Nothing to lose. Everything to gain. It's just, yeah. I've, I've noticed that there, that is a common thing with Métis kids is they're not afraid to use their voices. Like we're very passionate, fiery people just by nature. And I don't think that that's anything that comes, it comes down to resiliency, right? They're not afraid to speak up. And I love that. And I think that that's something we should all be nurturing and saying like, ah, yep, see, that's that Métis fire. Long line of matriarchs. That's where that comes from. And point that out so they know it and they're proud of it. Awesome. And speaking of what special message for the females, the, <laughs> the girls that are on this special message, would it be that? Would it be, hey, oh, yeah. you come from a long line? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We, uh, we are our mother's daughters and we are our grandmother's daughters. And there were seven generations before us that dreamed of what our lives would be like. And that's, that's a big, when you think about the, like that, that many prayers that it lands in you and lives in your bodies, think forward. You have to think about the impact. It's that ripple effect, the seven generations, right? Like we have to honor our grandmothers and we have to honor our mothers, our sisters, our cousins and to focus on that. And, you know, we were born to be warriors. We're born to fight. There are so many cool stories in Métis history about women and not enough of them are told. And like, I, I read a story just yesterday about a woman in the Red River who went all the way to Toronto and horsewhipped a, a settler reporter, the Toronto Post, because... He was saying disparaging things about half-breed women and she was just having none of it. And like, that's where we come from. And people were fine with it. They were just like, yeah, well, I shouldn't have done that. 
<laughs> that is that is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that term, right? I I have those birth certificates in our history that we found, and all of oh. them say half breed on them. Oh, yeah, that's you know, that it was somehow you, know, you could say that back then. It's so weird when you think about it. It's kind of eugenicy. I don't know if that's a word. I'm going to make it a word, but like, we weren't livestock. We were human beings, and we helped build a nation. We kept our families together. Women played such an important role and continue to play such an important role in families and in cultural continuity that like, why wouldn't she be proud to be a Métis woman? And maybe we were a threat. Maybe that's why they felt like they needed to use terminology that made us seem less than because we never were. Artistically gifted, uh, ethnobotanists, the midwives of the prairies, known for our medicines, our connections to land, our resiliency, our adaptability, raised huge families when men were off trading for months at a time, like ran households. We were like the economic center where they brought back all the furs and things and we prepared them for trade, often negotiating the trade with First Nations group because we were more linguistic. Like Métis women historically have always been incredible. And the more I learn, the more excited I am to be one. And the more I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> I have to start aiming higher. Because there's, yeah, there's responsibilities that come with that, right? And it's part of the learning journey. But like, what an exciting thing to be, a Métis woman. How could you not be proud? It's awesome. Now, Lauren, those that are listening to the show, watching the show, and, and they're just kind of like, they're, dab- they're, they're, they're dipping their foot into the Métis pool. You know, they, they know they're Métis. Or they just discovered they were Métis and they want to embrace more of this culture. They want to embrace their history. Where should they go? How, you know, where, where's a good place to get started swimming in this incredible pool, to use that analogy? I know a lot of people are really tempted to go onto Facebook. And I think that there is value in genealogy groups if you're interested in that. But we are more than our family trees. The best learning you can do is within the community absolutely connect with your charter community, get to know people across the lifespan, not just people your own age. I think the thing that's missing with social media is you don't have the voices of children, which are incredibly valuable. You don't have families, you have adults, you have literate adults, which automatically puts up barriers. A lot of elders aren't on Facebook and that's, you can't have cultural continuity. When we only seek out things that are easy, we're not going to get the full immersion, right? Like it's a good start. It's a good place to start to find community, but that shouldn't be the end all be all. You're not getting an authentic experience. You're just applying another colonial lens that you've been raised with to Métis. And that's not a fair representation of who we are or our values or how we do things. We adapt to use these technologies, but Yeah, go out on the land, go connect with your charter community, go harvesting, go, go learn to bead with an auntie, bring tea to an elder, just like get out there. And people want to connect. We all want to connect because Métis people are relational people. Like I literally showed up in Victoria and emailed the local when I went back and was like, Hey, (laughs) I'm here. (laughs) What are we doing? And and they included me. They were like, perfect. You're here. Let's go make some moccasins. And I was like, yes. And how do you find you just Google Métis local community? How do you how do you discover we, these worlds? To find the charter communities, there are 39 of them. You go to the MNBC website, 
And it's just under communities. There are seven regions in the province. And within those seven regions, there are 39 communities. And they are run by incredibly passionate volunteers that make up community boards. And they are just all such wonderful, giving, caring people that just want to make sure that our culture continues. So if you need, or like the people are supported, like I've never been more proud than watching this summer, realizing there was so much devastation and harm due to wildfires, but recognizing all of the work and mobilization that was happening within our communities to make sure people got what they needed and were supported. That was a beautiful thing to see. And in my work connecting with families, it's almost always coming from the charter communities. This family needs this. They need an advocate. They need support building a relationship with the school district. And it's happening because these people are watching and learning and trying to support everybody. And they they don't get paid for it, which is insane. Feels weird to me. But yeah, reach out to the charter communities because I think it's like in Western culture, we like we center ourselves. We're raised to think about our experiences first. Like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid to reach out to people. There's that block. In Métis culture, if you're raised with it from birth, you're raised or you're taught later in life as you reconnect to think about everybody else. So you think about intentions versus impacts and it becomes this thing. These people are community builders. They want people to come. They want people to engage. They want to share those gifts because they have so many gifts to give. And they help people. What I notice is they help them realize what gifts they have. If I hadn't connected with like the Native Friendship Center in Victoria or done the Lenonget program or the Native Students Union or the Métis Nation of Greater Victoria, I wouldn't be working in education because they were the ones that were like, you'd probably be good at this. Here you go. And like, I didn't have a choice. It's like, there's such beautiful things that can come from connecting, but that would be the place that I would recommend starting for sure. So Lauren, we started talking about reconciliation. We just in Canada had Canadian Thanksgiving. And so there was a lot of talk this year because it was just days after Truth and Reconciliation Day, September 30th. So I was sent this text for people to think about, maybe even read, if they were to celebrate some sort of feast or Thanksgiving-esque meal. So I'm going to read this to you and then I'd love your thoughts on it. So here we go. So this is like a little meditation or thought around shifting the script around Thanksgiving. Consider the nations who tended fruit and nut trees. Imagine the gardens of corn, beans, squash, and sunflowers that were the ecological knowledge of the indigenous people of Canada, the very knowledge that saved the pilgrims from starvation. Consider the songs, the kinship, the lineal seed keepers, and ceremonies that guided indigenous cosmologies, landscapes, and people. Those sacred commitments left no person hungry or without medicine or without worth. It's beautiful. I think when I think about Thanksgiving, I, we've always done like seasonal food. We've always done just like the harvest, like focus more on that because in Canada, the frost comes earlier. So it makes sense for us to have our harvest festival in October and spend time with family. Feasting has always been like a cultural component of Indigenous communities. It never really occurred to me that it was considered to be like a colonial thing. Because in in my understanding, like there are harvest festivals all around the world. When I lived in South Korea, they had Chuseok. Uh, (laughs) 
like the celebrations around the fall equinox, spring equinox, like there's, there's seasonal things, the different bounties, different things the seasons bring and time changing. So like, I like to connect more so to that than the story of settlers coming and taking. But I understand that there is a lot of violence around there, especially in the United States around this time when they have Columbus Day and things like that. Like, that's very difficult. And it's it's hard to kind of reconcile the various viewpoints. So I don't really know where I sit with it. I just know that I really enjoy spending time with family, being around my mom and my brother. This was my first Thanksgiving home in three years. And Thanksgiving um, is an important time for our family. My birthday, so I'll say that first. It's not Libra season, it's Lauren season. So <laughs> um, my birthday, it's this weekend, yay. So it's Thanksgiving always falls around that. But also my father passed away on October 8th in 2012. And it gave us an opportunity because it, that year that it happened, Thanksgiving was the following day and he passed away just before midnight and then we, the clock changed, it was Thanksgiving. And it gave us an opportunity as a family to sit and think about our story and our relationship and how we were going to continue to honor my dad's memory. And that's kind of what it is, what it means to me now. It's still, it's a time to reflect on what I am grateful for because... Yes, I'm grateful for fall harvest and I'm grateful for bounty, but also I think about my relationship with who I am, my family, my place in my family, my place in my community, my relationship with the world that I walk on as well. So food, yes, it's a celebration of food and harvest because harvesting is how we traditionally honor our relationship with Mother Earth, but also with the people around me and the spaces that I'm in and the spaces I've been blessed to celebrate this time of year around the world. And it's just such a privilege. So it's a very humbling day. Very hard day, but a very humbling day. I don't think all days of remembrance and gratitude need to be big shows of celebration with like weird decorations or things. Like I, I love it when people do it. It's great for them. I love that journey for them. I'm not that person. <laughs> I'm more of like a, I will think about things and contemplate, but that, that's what that means for me. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for sharing so much, so much good learnings, so many great ideas. And just really, I feel like you, in a sense, like any great teacher, uh, took us on this educational journey in this last moments here as we are in your earbuds, headphones, maybe you're listening while you're cooking, maybe you're having a bath or having a walk or whatever you're doing right now. Thank you for joining us. And and Lauren, really appreciate you sharing so much uh, with all of us today. Thank you for having me, Marseille. Hi, hi, Miigwech. Merci. Thank you. And thank you from Gerald as well. He's hanging out. And those that are listening to the audio, that is a reference to a uh, dog in the background of the uh, of our <laughs> recording studio at the moment. So thank you for joining us this time, Métis Nation BC. Mm-hmm. Appreciate the support in bringing these stories to you. And we'll see you next time on the show. Au revoir. This has been the Métis Speaker Series podcast. I'm Darian Kovacs. Thanks to the Métis Nation of British Columbia for making this possible with funding provided by the Civil Forfeiture Office's Indigenous Healing Stream. You can listen to all of our episodes, learn more about the podcast, and sign up to the Métis Nation of BC newsletter to stay up to date on Métis news at metispodcastseries.ca. You can find out more about the music we're playing 
by Love Life by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lovelifeofficial, L-U-V-L-Y-F official, and link in the show notes for your convenience. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening device. See you again soon. Mina Kawapa Mitten. Thank you, Marcy, for listening. <laughs>